Hello and welcome to Smith and Sheridan on Biotech, a podcast on the science and business of biotechnology, presented by me, Cormac Sheridan, and me, Andy Smith. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? Good. And this week, I think we're focusing a little bit on the business of biotech. At least that's what I seem to glean from the notes that you were popping back and forth by email. You think that there is a certain significance attached to the way that Sanofi structured its acquisition deal with Inhibirex? Is that how you pronounce them? Yeah, it could be. Inhibirex or... Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're missing a vowel. Why they, they are, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, but absolutely. And it's let's go back a bit. When I first started as an investor in life sciences, you would expect or you would hope that a biotech company would license its product to a big pharma company. And at some point, that relationship would develop and the big pharma company would then buy the, the biotech company, just like the on-off transactions between Roche and Genentech over the years. It's sort of that the happy progress from engagement to matrimony. Yeah, I've actually heard from some CEOs that have done an acquisition. Is they walk into a room with a big pharma company, expected to talk about licensing deals, and it ends up being, we want to inquire you instead. Because the price of the two options is not too different. So that was the status quo for many years. And in addition, in better times, if a biotech company wants to fund the development of its drug, then it would just go out and raise equity to equity investors and then we'd get the money and they would go ahead. Now, as we talked about in previous podcasts, our first one, in fact, at the, you know, the wilderness period, we are not there anymore or mm. even at the moment. And what we've seen with Snoffy's acquisition of Inhibrix, for example, and then before that, Pfizer's acquisition and then spin out of Biohaven is that, well, there are a number of things that we could speculate that's going on. Is pharma being a bit more tentative about how it goes about M&A? And because both of those two transactions, Biohaven and Inhibrix, the big pharma company has gone in and said, look, I really like this particular asset. I just want that. But at the same time, Pfizer and Biohaven, that deal was done, what, 2022? Yeah. Pfizer was awash with cash and it had no shortage of resource. So I don't necessarily think that they were going through a difficult time, but they just maybe made a selective acquisition because they liked some of the asset base of the company, didn't necessarily want the rest. Maybe the management and other investors saw value in the bits that Pfizer wasn't interested in, because I, I know it was all around migraine and there was like, was it an yeah. approved product yeah. and a pipeline product? And again, it was very particular that they took the calcitonin gene-related peptide, what, blockers, I presume, were they? Um, yeah, yeah, inhibitors, yeah. But they, they, they left behind the potassium channel inhibitors and the glutamate modulation. So that might have been a scientific rather than a financial decision, maybe. True, and you would hope that's the case. But in the past, you know, Big Pharma has not been that selective. And particularly when we're talking about Pfizer in the time when they did the Biohaven deal, as you say, Cormac, they were awash with cash. So you might expect them to be a little less price sensitive or what they were buying 
Well, there were probably some of it for Sejin as well, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should they, had they known about it then. But, yeah, they think, okay, well... We they may well have known about it. I mean, those deals, yeah. you don't decide a $43 billion acquisition deal the week before you announce it. No, I mean, but then in Pfizer's case, what they were doing might be watching the proposed acquisition. It was Merck was proposed to be interested for a number of years. And then... Yeah. And then perhaps, again, as we talked about in previous podcasts, perhaps the FTC got in a way with informal discussions and said, no, Merck, you're too big in oncology. And then Pfizer came along and said, we're not big in oncology, we're just rubbish in oncology. In fact. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to the acquisition, in days gone by, Pharma would buy the whole company and that would be the end of the story. Yeah. We've had an interim period where perhaps the two parties can't agree on the price. Mm. And we had a phase, do you remember this, where we went through the contingent value rights or the CVRs? where Contingent value rights, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so where yeah. the pharma company would say, okay, we like this. We like this mm. lead asset. Mm. Everything else or the second and third assets, we're not that keen on and we can't value those mm -hmm. if we were to acquire you. But how about this? Mm -hmm. How about we'll acquire you for this amount, which values a lead asset. Mm -hmm. And if your subsequent two assets come to fruition, then we will give you some more money. That's the principle of the contingent value, right? It doesn't necessarily relate, though, to secondary assets. I mean, in the Sanofi and Hibrix deal, there is a CVR attached there, too. And it's triggered by the attainment of a regulatory milestone, as it's stated in the press release, although I assume that means approval. So it's just bizarre why they can't just say it, approval, as opposed to a regulatory milestone. Yeah, yeah. Because it's hardly kind of file accepted for a review. I mean, that's not going to butter any parsnips, to quote John Major. That's right, yeah, because you could file with the FDA something written on the back of the postage stamp and it counts as a filing, right? So, but yeah, yeah, you're right. And the CVRs, after a number of years, got a bit of a bad press with biotech investors just because if the company makes the whole acquisition of the biotech company, mm -hmm. pharma makes the acquisition of the biotech company, mm -hmm. then the payout of the CVR, and I think this Gene BMS came a cropper with this, is at the pharma company's discretion. Really? So if they drag their feet on the product or even stop doing the development, yeah. I mean, there are probably things in their best efforts, whatever. Your attorneys will tell you that doesn't mean anything, but best commercial effort or something. But if they decide of their own mind for whatever reason not to progress a product, then the CVI never pays out and they save themselves some money. Yeah, but then they've paid a chunk of cash for an underperforming asset. Well, that's the first asset. Like they paid out for the first asset. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The CVR will be the subsequent assets. If it's structured that way, yeah. But yeah. if you look at, say, the Inhibrix deal with Sanofi, it's basically the bulk of the value of the deal is up front. It's $1.7 And there's just under $300 million as a CVR attached to the undisclosed regulatory milestone. Yeah. I take your point about the secondary assets. But, I mean, again, the people who are on the, the sell side in those kind of negotiations, I mean, they're children. If they're happy with the price, you should just write off the CVR. Or it's a kind of a yeah, cherry on top, and you really need to just drive hard for the upfront piece, uh, the guaranteed piece. And if you go so hard with so much value for the upfront piece, yeah. you run into problems with, well, the big pharma company, we can't get there. We just can't get there. And in those yeah. sort of situations, and we've seen recently, and we mentioned in previous podcasts, cytokinetics. Mm -hmm. And even an example, which we might get onto with the royalty financing of Bridge Bio, the acquisitions haven't yet happened. Now, mm. they've been rumoured in press articles that are normally pretty accurate mm. to have been under discussion. So if they don't actually come to fruition, 
you've got to think there's a good reason why. And the most obvious reason in the investment world is valuation. You can't get close between mm-hmm. the two parties, not even with a CVR. And yeah. possibly then, because the sector has matured and the lawyers and advisors on both sides are now aware of these different structures, whether it's a CVR or whether it's an acquisition or a spin-out, is that you just can't get there in the, as you were saying, the, the big piece, the upfront piece in valuation. And then I'm going to put on my so what hat, Mm, mm. this little piece of headgear that basically alerts me to, well, what are these products for? They're for patients who have severe illnesses for which they need good therapies. Why should a patient, why should a treating doctor care about any of this? They shouldn't in the first instance. So if a big pharma has licensed out a lead asset, from a biotech company mm-hmm. and they like the asset enough to pay what these days billions of dollars in order mm-hmm. to get it then patients and physicians should be pleased mm-hmm. because hopefully accepting the probability of success of clinical trials hopefully there is a drug for their disease or indication coming their way at the end of the day more so than there was before because it was in the hands of a, a biotech company there's always uncertainties you know not the least as we talked about with funding on those so in that respect it's good now if we talk about some of the other acquisitions where we've got royalties being sold off to financial institutions i think that's less bullish for both patients and physicians Mm -hmm. because typically and we're now moving on beyond the normal sense of what we would see as deal transactions where a big pharma company buys a biotech company outright and then we've just been talking about the secondary aspect where a big pharma likes the lead asset and buys that lead asset out and then spins off the rest into another company Mm -hmm. but then we've also had transactions in the last year or even this year where a separate non-pharmaceutical investor comes along and buys a chunk of the future royalties Mm -hmm. of a product. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're talking about what's good for biotech and what's good for patients and doctors, I think that is less good or less bullish for them because it means that had the biotech company been able to do a transaction with a pharma company, whether it's an acquisition Mm -hmm. or it's a product licensing or even a acquisition of a single product and spin out of the rest it would have done mm-hmm. yet it didn't so but just to be kind of counterfactual there yeah, yeah. i mean you could be a small cap or a mid-cap quoted biotech company and you want to raise cash you don't want to punish investors by raising cash in equity dilutive fashion that will mean the share price will drop You don't want to do a deal either for various reasons, because maybe the price on offer isn't nice or that the obvious contenders already have assets in play. And this is a way of raising non-dilutive finance. I mean, that's not a crime, is it? (laughs) No, it's not. And investors, at least, would be absolutely over the moon or typically Mm. absolutely over the moon at that. A non-dilutive financing of a sale of partial royalties of a drug to fund the future development of a drug. Now, mm. in that respect, that's both logical for the company and mm. it is logical for the investors as well because they don't yeah. have to suffer the dilution. And isn't it always very case-specific? I mean, say I'm company A, I have a commercial product that is okay, it's going to make some money, there will be... I mean, if, it's, if you're selling off royalties, it actually assumes that you actually have a deal, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. But... 
I'm actually much more interested in the earlier stage assets in my pipeline because you know there's enhanced science and there's greater potential but I need 500 million dollars or I need a billion dollars to get them to the next step whatever it is approval or phase three or something so that it makes perfect sense in that scenario and that's just a scenario I mean every company is facing different scenarios at different times and they've got different assets in play they've got different amounts of cash or debt on the balance sheet so it's all part of the sort of universe of possibilities that exist for funding for companies I mean and, and it is I would yeah. add one point to your previous point Cormac Mac is that if you're a biotech company and you have a portfolio of assets, mm. then do you develop your biggest asset first, the one that's most likely to be licensed by a big pharma company Typically, and it has yeah. the biggest market? Or do you develop your smallest, most difficult one first? Mm. Typically, you don't. You develop no. the biggest one first. And therefore, that's why we've seen these sort of transactions where the big one gets taken out. You go large or you go home. Um, And I I take that point. But at the same time, things can happen. And that what you thought was going to be your big splash asset at the start is superseded by new science. And that difficult second album, in fact, is going to be the Grammy Award winning, etc, etc, etc. And that actually happened with a company, listeners may recognize it, called Alexion Pharmaceuticals. Their lead drug years ago, a cardiovascular drug, failed in phase three, failed in two phase three studies. And then they went on to develop another blockbuster and then were acquired by AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. And stupidly, I sold at the first failure in the fund I was managing rather than stay on for the after event. But I'm, I'm just, uh, gonna, the, the, just you're right. let me take out my tiny violin and play uh, yeah. <laughs> a, 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 a little dirge for you. But sorry to hear that. And the pivoters, there's many examples of people who've executed a pivot, some sort of a strategic redirection. I mean, Vertex arguably fits that bill as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Vertex started yeah. in in wildly yeah. different areas than they are today. I mean, the whole disaster that was hepatitis C antivirals for Vertex, the first direct acting antiviral for Vertex Pharmaceuticals came to the market. And then better ones came along from Gilead, mm-hmm. Merck, and they ended up being mm-hmm. nowhere. You know, so it, the evolution of the company, thankfully, or not, last years. In yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And then coming back to Sanofi, I mean, in addition to the deal structure stuff, uh, some of which does kind of, you know, uh, cause my eyes to glaze over a bit, I'll be very frank. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual condition and the efforts to treat it are also noteworthy, I think, aren't they? Yeah, this particular indication... Mm. I mean, in life sciences, we talk about graveyard indications where nothing has worked really. And we might be edging towards a non-graveyard indication in Alzheimer's disease, although I have my doubts. I I, I would share your doubts, yeah. But certainly stroke. I mean, the companies I've seen either as an investor or an analyst or a columnist over the years that are enthusiastic about their stroke products for the treatment of stroke and it came to nothing are legendary aren't there are other Mm. indications and this the alpha one antitrypsin deficiency is another one that i've seen over the years a number of companies try and fail to get a product so Mm. it's a big ask ask, but i mean there are products we have plasma derived products in multitudes they're suboptimal because basically it's very hard to maintain sufficient concentrations of active protein. And just for those who mightn't be abreast of the science, basically it's an inherited condition caused by typically there's a point mutation in the gene encoding alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is not helpfully called the serpinase 1 gene, which refers <laughs> to the fact that I think it's a family of serine proteinases. And 
Its main function, I understand, is to keep neutrophil elastase in check in the lung, and that's a sort of an infection-fighting enzyme, but if there is too much activity from that enzyme, it causes the lungs to lose their elasticity, emphysemia results, and then long-term progressive lung damage. But then there's a second problem that the mutation that causes the loss of functional alpha-1 antitrypsin gives rise to this misfolded alpha-1 antitrypsin, which accumulates in the liver and it aggregates and polymerizes and causes liver fibrosis, which is mm. another graveyard indication for which there have yeah, been some I, glimmers I, I for hope. <laughs> but Let's be less glib on this graveyard mm. indication. I think, and for alpha-1 antitrypsin mm. deficiency, let's yeah. say it is a continuing unmet medical yeah, yeah, need yeah, because yeah, the... Yeah. The clinical sequelae of alpha-1 and 3 antitrypsin deficiency are you know, not just, as you mentioned, lung, perhaps gastrointestinal, but yeah. many yeah. and varied and leading to a really poor quality of life and ultimately death. Yeah. So it is a, a massive unmet need. And I, and I can sort of see why companies who are, are attracted towards reasonably orphan indications with still with unmet clinical needs, but not small, not the smallest of orphan indications. No, no, that I can not. see why people are still interested in this in this in this disease. And what's interesting about what Sanofi is picking up from Inhibrix is that it's actually kind of a, a fairly traditional, dare I say it, unsexy kind of product. It's a fusion mm. protein. Mm-hmm. It's the recombinant alpha one antitrypsin protein fused to the FC portion of an antibody purely to improve its pharmacokinetics so that it'll persist longer in circulation and therefore be much more active than the plasma-derived products will be. And they hope that will result in a more uh, convenient dosing regimen. So currently, you have to dose people every week, and even then, they can't maintain sufficient levels of the alpha one nitrogypsin protein, whereas it now goes out to three or four weeks. Yeah, sometimes in drug discovery, you don't always have to go for the sledgehammer yeah, that cracks yeah, yeah. on that yeah, other absolutely. Diff- difficult disease. Yeah. And we've seen probably things that were, as you mentioned, replacement mm-hmm. therapies. We've seen chaperones. Yeah. We've yeah. seen you know, other recombinant proteins. And if you had a lower tech and it works, mm-hmm. who's going to worry and about that? there's some very fancy high-tech stuff earlier in the development pipeline here. There's two companies who have RNA editing products. That's Wave Life Sciences, and they've found a partner with GS mm-hmm. in the form of GSK. And you've got CoroBio, and both are using this adenosine deaminase acting on RNA-mediated RNA editing, mm-hmm. or ADAR, as it's called for short. And that's such a clever idea, but it makes huge demands on the drug product that you basically have to, as the cells in the liver keep on churning out this mutant messenger RNA, or maybe it's the pre-RNA actually, they have to go in Mm. and do the edit on the fly all the time so that you get a healthy amount of wild-type functional alpha-1 antitrypsin being produced in the cells and being exported into the circulation. There's a couple of gene therapy approaches, and they're aiming for localized production of the protein in the lung. Crystal Biotech, who are using heart-based simplex-1 viruses that are replication-defective, they're taking that approach, and there's a newly formed UK company, Adverum Biotechnologies, and they're using an AEV vector. Oh, they're actually doing liver, actually. I correct myself, they're doing liver. There's a few neutrophil elastase inhibitor developers, like Mireo Biopharma is most advanced there. They're hoping to get a phase three trial going soon. 
Vertex are trying their sort of chaperone kind of products or correctors. Mm-hmm. Biomarin is doing the same. Intellia is trying to do some CRISPR-based gene editing. All those latter approaches are either phase one or preclinical. Phase one in the case of Vertex, all the other ones are preclinical. Yeah, it's alveologene is doing a nebulized lentiviral vector gene therapy approach. That's again for localized production of the protein in the lungs. So there's a ton of things going on. And Takeda Arrowhead, we must mention as well, with Fazir. Saran, which is doing SIRNA approach, and again, that's for liver-directed, and it wouldn't necessarily have any great effect on the lung manifestations of the disease, unfortunately. So the inhibrix Sanofi approach, and there, there is phase two data, is, no, there's phase two registration-enabling trial underway at the moment, so they've obviously seen data, they're obviously quite happy to pay a fair chunk of cash up front, And what's attractive about it is that, as you say, it's not a sledgehammer. It's not sort of the most scientifically high-risk approach. It's just essentially trying to prove the pharmacokinetic profile of an existing therapeutic. And it can be obviously very challenging to do that. But it's kind of scientifically and clinically de-risked, you would think. And it's, I mean, the some of the other molecules you've talked about, Cormac, aren't the only things that are in early stage. I mean, the inhibrix molecule is in phase two. Yeah, It's not even at no. the end. Of phase yeah, two, yeah, yeah. So it's still, yeah. still but it's, they hold the phase two. It's a registration enabling trial, and to their credit, they are doing a head-to-head comparison with plasma-derived product, which I salute. They're not doing a placebo-controlled trial, and we're not seeing enough of that actually, where you get a proper, definitive readout. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you see trial announcements yeah. that say um, perform well against yeah. placebo. Well, um, which doctor for that indication prescribes a prescription placebo? It's it's just scientifically irrelevant or illiterate, but they'll do it if they can get away with it. And I salute both parties. Well, I salute Inhibrix for taking that approach. It might have been required by the regulators. So there'll be fairly clear-cut information on this, and I think that's a positive. But I'd just Mm -hmm. like to add one thing. It is an interesting deal. It's prompted us to talk about it. But, I mean, sometimes investors have the last word. At least they do until they change their minds. So the Inhibrix stock price went down 9% on that announcement of Sanofi's acquisition of Inhibrix and the spinning out of new Inhibrix. So they at least were hoping for more. They they were hoping for a traditional acquisition or a license. That's why investors invest in biotech companies. They all want their 60% premium. And yeah. And again, I'll be taking out my tiny violin to play for them too. <laughs> my hope for this is the alpha one antitrypsin deficient patient community will be the beneficiaries. And yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I know obviously as, as you need investor do. support yeah. to get the products all the way. And obviously, I presume they will not be in receipt of filings from the Federal Trade Commission on this one. It's not like the Pompeii disease situation. We talked about in a previous podcast, the trials and tribulations Mm. of Sanofi with the FTC. But yes, it's in phase two. Mm -hmm. It's not even at the end of phase two. So it's early enough. I don't believe Sanofi has another product in this particular indication. So you might think the lawyers at Sanofi will be relaxed about this and not expecting a knock on the door from the Federal Trade Commission about a monopolistic position. So that's a positive. Even as we speak, there are some Sanofi lawyers and business (laughs) development people enjoying a rather good lunch for themselves and yes. marking the end of a good That's week. Good though. Why don't we ring them up and say, this is the FTC, we would like a word. No, I, I wouldn't be one to spoil a party, would you? <laughs> anyway, until no. the next time, thank you. See you, Andy. Bye-bye. Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye.